Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful for Your Word, the Bible, the written Word of God. We're thankful that we can know You and You have revealed Yourself here in this wonderful book. May we know the truth and may the truth set us free. And so we ask that uh, the truth would be proclaimed and that it would be accurately and faithfully proclaimed and You would uh, grant us illumination to understand what the Word of God is saying. So may we behold wonderful things from Your Word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we begin the mini-series on issues facing the church, we've got to start here with this question. What is your authority? What is your authority? See, we all have an authority. The question is, what is it? Uh, even for Christians, it's not always the same answer for everybody. Everybody has an authority. And sometimes you might even hear me or other Christians, uh, you know, I, I like this saying, I want our church to be a word-centered church. Well, what does that mean? <laughs> well, when I say that, well, it could mean different things to different people, but when I say that, it, I, I'm just saying that the ultimate authority for our church is the Bible. It's our rule for faith and practice. You've probably heard that before. In other words, the, the Bible is what guides what we believe and what we do. It's our standard. You've got to have some sort of standard. Everybody has a standard, so what is that going to be? And so because this should be true for every one of us as Christians, so over the coming weeks now we're going to study the doctrine of the Bible, the doctrine of the Word of God. That needs to be the foundation. Everything else is built upon that. And so we've got to start with this, because this is confusing to some people. There, there's actually different forms of the Word of God. I'm not saying there's different forms of the Bible, but there's different forms of the Word of God. And so to answer that question, what are these different forms? Well, we need to understand what, what does it actually mean by the phrase, the Word of God. What is meant by that phrase, the Word of God? It's a very important phrase. Actually, there's several different meanings taken by this phrase in the Bible itself. And I think you'll find it helpful to distinguish the different senses clearly here at the very beginning of this study. Because I often talk about the Word of God or the Bible, the Scriptures. And, and, and in my mind when I'm preaching, I'm, I'm often thinking that as, as synonyms. So let's, let's make sure we're clear on this. And I found great help, by the way. I'm, I am in, in, eternally indebted to theologians past and, and present. Uh, as, I, as I think about theology, I stand on the shoulders of other men. You've got 2,000 years of church history that are very helpful here. And so I, I, I don't want to claim that I'm saying something new or this is some... Uh, you know, I'm, I'm the first one to come up with this because I'm certainly not. But uh, th this one's hopefully obvious to you. As we think about the first form of the Word of God, you need to think of the Word of God as a person. And, and by that I mean Jesus Christ is the Word of God. And sometimes the Bible itself refers to Jesus as the Word of God. In, in fact, in the book of Revelation, the last book in your Bible... We have there John seeing the risen Lord in heaven, and he says this in Revelation 19. The name by which he is called is the Word of God. 
scriptures on the screen there for you. Of course, there's similar verses you could go to, like John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, in that very first verse in John's Gospel there, it, it might be a little unclear if all you did was look at that verse and you ripped it out of its context. Who is the Word? Well, if you move on to verse 14, John chapter 1, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the, uh, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So based upon verse 14, you know who the Word is then, don't you? The Word is Jesus. He's the one who became flesh and dwelt among us. And so those verses indicate that among the members of the Trinity, it's especially God the Son then, in His person as well as in His words, He has the role of communicating the character of God to us. But not only is Jesus communicating the character of God to us, but he's also expressing the will of God for us. And he does that through his, his very himself, his very person, as well as his words. So the first form of the word of God is a person in the form of Jesus Christ. But number two, the word of God also comes as speech by God. And in the Bible, you see it in four different parts. So you got the speech of God in four different parts. First of all, you have God's decrees. God's decrees. Sometimes God's words take the form of these powerful statements, decrees. They're causing events to happen, even causing other things to come into being. For example, the first time I can think of this in the Bible is in Genesis 1, verse 3, which just simply says, God said. What, what did he say? He said, let there be light, and there was light. That's the first example in the Bible of a decree of God. He says something, and it comes into being. And everything that we can see and, and can't see, except for mankind, was created by God's decree. Therefore, the psalmist himself in Psalm 33 can say this, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made and all their host by the breath of his mouth. These powerful creative words from God we often call God's decrees. And you say, well, well then what is a decree? Well, I'm glad you asked. Here's, a, here's what a decree is. A decree of God is a word of God that causes something to happen. Causes something to happen. So these decrees of God then will include not only events like special creation, we see in Genesis, but it would the continuing existence of all things in this universe would be included in this. For example, Hebrews chapter 1 Verse 3 tells us that Jesus Christ is continually upholding the universe by the word of his power. So not only did Jesus Christ create the whole universe, he holds it together. He continues to hold it together by the word of his power. So we have, uh, number one, God's decrees. But number two, 
we have God's words of personal address. So in the past, God has sometimes communicated with people on earth by speaking directly to them. One of the first examples you can find in your Bibles in Genesis chapter 2. One of the, uh, it, well, here, here's what it says. I'll put it on the screen for you. Genesis 2, verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall die. Okay? God is giving a personal address to Adam here. He's saying, this is what you shouldn't do, this is what you should, this is what you should do. And so, that, that's pretty clear, I hope. That's a personal address from God himself. Another clear one is found in Exodus chapter 20. God's direct personal address to, to some people here on earth. And, and he's doing this through the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20 says this, God spoke all these words. And then he says... I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. We're familiar with the Ten Commandments, I hope. Good example of a personal address. Now, why is that important, okay? Why, why do theologians distinguish between these things? Well, whenever God spoke words of personal address, like he did with Moses or, or Adam. It was clear to the hearers that these were the actual words of God. It, it was no doubt to them who was speaking. They're hearing God's very voice. And therefore, they were hearing words that had absolute divine authority behind them. They were absolutely trustworthy because God was the one speaking, and they knew it was God speaking. Therefore, to disbelieve then or disobey any of these words meant that you were disbelieving or disobeying God himself. And of course, when you do that, that means you're sinning. So we have God's decrees, number one. Number two, God's words of personal address. But there's also God's words as speech through human lips. Frequently in Scripture, we particularly in the Old Testament, we see God raising up prophets through whom he speaks. He's the, uh, the prophets are the, the messenger of God. It's evident that although they're human words, spoken in ordinary human language by just an ordinary human being, there's authority behind those words. There's a truthfulness in those words that cannot be diminished they're still completely God's words, even though he's using a prophet to do that. I want you to see what God says to Moses. Uh, look at Deuteronomy chapter 18. Please turn to Deuteronomy chapter 18. So Moses, one of the first prophets, God used him to speak to his people. So have a look at Deuteronomy 18 says, (coughs) 
we'll start reading Deuteronomy 18, verse 18. I will raise up for them a prophet like you. This is God speaking. He's saying, I'm going to raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. So, anyone who then claimed to speak for Yahweh, but had not received a message from him, was severely punished. It's a serious warning. So, as we read on, look what it says here in verse 21. Verse 21. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? What's the answer? Verse 22. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. So what's the point? Well, the point is this, my friends, that God's words spoken through human lips were to be considered just as authoritative as God's decrees. Just as authoritative, just as true as God's words of personal address. Just like he, when he spoke to Adam and Moses. So there's no diminishing authority going on here just because God chooses to use the lips of a human being. So to disobey or disbelieve any of them was to disbelieve or disobey God himself. Well, there's a fourth one we need to be aware of here. Number four, we also see God's words in written form. Of course, we're talking about the Bible, the Holy Bible, the Scriptures. So in Scripture, we also find several instances where God's words were put in written form. So even in the written form itself, we have written forms. Does that make sense? Uh, the, uh, a first example is in Exodus chapter 31. Exodus chapter 31. Please turn there. Exodus 31. So God is is speaking to Moses, telling him to do something. But then I want you to notice what, what does Moses do here. So Exodus 31, look at verse 18. Let's actually start in verse 17. So you know the Lord said to Moses, You shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it. Sorry, that's the wrong chapter. Uh, Great verse, just wrong chapter. No wonder it didn't make sense. Look at chapter 31. Chapter 31, verse 18. 
And he, that's God, gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. Could this be the first example of the written form of God? The written word of God? Probably. God used his very own finger to write in stone the Ten Commandments. Look at, an, uh, look at chapter 32, verse 16, another one here. Chapter 32, verse 16, it says, The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. Well, we could keep going on this. God talked about this several times in Exodus. But the point is this. God is the one who has written down his words, and it's in written form. So the Ten Commandments are not the only example in the Bible of this. There's many more. Uh, well, I'll give you some examples from, from prophets here. For example, Isaiah. Isaiah 30, verse 8, it says this, Now go, God speaking to, to Isaiah, and he says, Write it before them on a tablet, and inscribe it in a book, that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. God also said something similar to the prophet Jeremiah. Chapter 30, verse 2, he says, Write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. God could have just spoken through the prophet, but God said, I also want it written in a book. So you might wonder, well, why did God do that? Well, there's several benefits that actually come from the writing down of God's words. Let me give you some benefits. Praise God for these. You should. Number one, and, and these aren't original with me. I've found these from various theologians. And the first one I found is that there's a much more accurate preservation of God's words for subsequent generations. It's a much more accurate preservation of God's words. You, you know, a lot of cultures depend on their memories or the repeating of their oral traditions or maybe even carvings or drawings on cave walls or whatever it might be. But of course, you, you, you know with that particular method of communication, it's not as reliable in actually preserving words. And that's one reason why you get all kinds of oral traditions changing. and It's kind of like Chinese whispers. You ever played that game? Any of you ever played Chinese whispers? Where somebody starts by saying a statement, you whisper it in someone else's ear, and then they whisper it in somebody else's ear, and then they whisper it in someone else's ear, and by the time you get down the line, it's a totally different story than the one you started with. Right? Just that little simple game can be quite funny, but it's not funny when it comes to God's words. <laughs> we don't want God's words to be changed to something else. We want to know exactly what God said. This is deadly serious. And number two, the second benefit is that the opportunity then for repeated inspection of God's words are written down there for us. And so it it's going to permit you to have careful study, careful discussion and reading of God's words, which of course will lead to a better understanding and hopefully a complete obedience then of God's words. 
Number three, the third benefit is this, that God's words in writing are accessible to many more people uh, than they are when they're just preserved merely through someone's memory or just by oral tradition. And so that's why we have the Bible's now been translated into thousands and thousands of languages. Praise God, it's not based upon someone's memory. It's not just upon oral tradition. And so we can get God's words in all of these languages because it was written down. Well, we've talked about four forms of the Word of God. All those forms, by the way, is the focus of our study, with, you, you think about those forms, then what, what's going to be the focus of our study? What do you think? Well, it should be pretty obvious then as we talk about the doctrine of the Bible that the focus I'm going to take then is, is God's words in written form. So our focus is going to be on the Bible. And so this is the form of God's word that is available for us to study. It's for public inspection. It's for repeated examination and the basis for mutual discussion. So it tells us about, and it points us to Jesus Christ. We don't have Jesus here physically with us today, but we do have his word. The other forms of the word of God are not suitable then as the primary basis for the study of theology. For example, we don't hear God's words of decree. God's not commanding me with audible voice. He uses his word to do that. We can't study them directly, but only through observation of their efforts. So what's most profitable for us to study then? God's decrees, personal address, something else? Or is it the written word, the Bible? Well, that's why we study the Bible, is it not? That's why we, the Bible is preached. That's what's most profitable for us. It's God's written word that he commands us to study. I want you to see a few verses that show this. I'll put them on the screen here for you. Psalm chapter 1, verse 1 says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's talking about the written form there. Joshua 1.8 is talking about the written form of God's word. It says, The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. So notice it's the written form there that God wants us to know and study and meditate upon. So may God give us a passionate desire for the written Word of God. Well, that leads me to another question we need to think about then. How do we know that the Bible is God's Word? How do we know the Bible is God's Word, and how do we know that we even have all the books of the Bible for that fact? How do we know that we're not missing some books of the Bible? Or how do we know that we don't have too many books in our Bible? Well, that, that's an issue of canonization, which I might address at some other time. But let's just think about this, though. How do we know that the Bible is God's Word? 
if you're talking to someone and they, they don't believe the Bible is God's word, what would you tell them? How are you going to prove that to them? Well, I hope you go to the Bible <laughs> to prove it to them. So what does the, 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 the whole Bible itself teach on this subject? What does it teach on, uh, about itself? Well, most Christians would agree that the Bible is our authority, at least in some sense, <laughs> I hope. But in exactly what sense does the Bible claim to be our authority? Do you even know that the Bible claims to be your authority? And, and, and if you know that, then how do we become persuaded that the claims of the Bible are actually true? Well, this is an issue of authority. So you need to understand, one of the very characteristics of the Bible is authority. It is authoritative in and of itself. Part of its essence, if you will. So I like this working definition by one theologian of the authority of Scripture. You say, well, what is the authority of Scripture? I hope this helps. Here it is. The authority of Scripture means that all the words in Scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disobey or disbelieve God. End quote. I'm going to take that phrase there and run with it, okay? So we see that all the words of Scripture are God's words. Sadly, this is a highly debated issue, particularly amongst liberals. And by the way, you need to be aware of this. Some of the greatest attacks on the church and on the Bible itself have come from people within the church who claim to be Christians. From pulpits from seminaries, theological professors of the Word of God attack the Word of God itself. How sad that is. And you, you need to be aware that's usually you're going to find the greatest attacks on the Bible are going to come from people who claim to be Christians. And you need to know how to refute that. Your faith needs to be strong. You can weather those attacks. So all the words of Scripture are God's words. Well, why do we say that? Well, first of all, this is what the Bible claims for itself. The Bible actually claims this for itself. And since the Bible's the ultimate authority, that's where we've got to go first. Because if I take you anywhere else, then I've just proclaimed something else to be a greater authority than the Bible. You understand that? So if I go to my human logic or science or archaeology or whatever it is, then I'm claiming that's a greater authority than the Bible. So we've got to start with the Bible. The Bible claims that the words are authoritative. So we start in the Old Testament. There's a frequently seen phrase in the Old Testament that shows that these are the words of God. How often do you see in the Old Testament this phrase, Thus says the Lord. Hundreds of times, in fact. You'll see that. Thus saith the Lord. If you're... It appears hundreds of times. This phrase is demonstrating that within the Old Testament, then, we have written records of words that are said to be God's own words. So the Bible's claiming this, this authority. 
And in the New Testament, there's a number of passages that, that are indicating that all those Old Testament writings are thought of as God's words. The, the obvious one comes to my mind is 2 Timothy 3.16, which says all Scripture is breathed out by God. And so when, when Paul mentions Scripture there, all graphe is the, the, the Greek word, all graphe, Scripture, he's talking about the Old Testament Scriptures. The Apostle Paul is saying the Old Testament was breathed out by God. That's an important word. So the Holy Spirit there is affirming that all of the Old Testament writings come from God Himself. God's the one who spoke it. Did He use people? Of course He did. Yes, He used holy men, the Bible says, to write these words down. In fact, if you don't believe me, look at 2 Peter. Look what Peter says. Peter was one of these holy men whom the Holy Spirit used. So look what he says in 2 Peter chapter 1. Second Peter 1, verse 19. Verse 19. Peter says, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. There's a couple important things we need to note here. First of all, in verse 19, Peter says the prophetic word of Scripture is more solid proof than even spectacular personal experiences. Now, he's referring to an experience he had. If you read the previous context, he's talking about when he saw Jesus. It wasn't magic, but he was, it's like he was magically transformed before his very eyes on the Mount of Transfiguration. In a sense, Jesus removed the veil that was blocking his glory for just a moment. Peter saw that. and In fact, he was... He was so awestruck by this event, he's, he's wanting to build all these tabernacles. <laughs> it was such a cool experience. Of course, he kind of missed the point, didn't he? The point was to see Jesus. But Peter didn't forget that personal experience. It was spectacular. But Peter says there is something that is even more solid proof. There is something better than that. And he says it's the word of Scripture. And then in verse 21, Peter says this verse here, he tells us the Holy Spirit is the source of Bible prophecy. It enabled the prophets then to speak and, and to write as God's representatives. See, people just didn't come up with this stuff on, on their own will. See, it was the Holy Spirit who moved them to write the scriptures, he says. And they couldn't have done that if the Holy Spirit wasn't moving them. 
And then the New Testament writings are also called Scripture along with those Old Testament writings. They're, they're equated to be the same. I'll, I'll give you an example. Look at 2 Peter 3, verse 16. This is what Peter says about the Apostle Paul and his writings. So in 2 Peter 3, 16, he says, And he does, talking about Paul, And he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So what did Peter just do? He just equated the Apostle Paul's scriptural writings with the whole Old Testament. It has the same authority, in other words. So the New Testament is Scripture, just like the Old Testament is Scripture. That's the point. Peter's acknowledging Paul's epistles, his letters. He's also showing a willingness to, cl- to clarify all the apostles' epistles with the Old Testament. A second point I want to make here is See, not only is the Bible claiming, which is the greatest authority, the Bible claims its words are the words of God. But if you're a believer, you know this point to be true as well. Number two is we're convinced of the Bible's claims to be God's words as we read the Bible. See, the Bible is so alive and powerful that a a, a believer knows its power as as he reads it. See, our ultimate conviction are the words of the Bible are God's words comes when the Holy Spirit speaks in and through those words. He speaks to our hearts. He gives us an inner assurance that these are the words of the Creator. I'll give you an example of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13. Look in your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 2, 13. Paul said this, we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Verse 14 says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. So who's doing this work in us? You can't understand the Bible without the Holy Spirit doing that work in you. You're not going to believe it unless the Holy Spirit impresses this truth upon you. So apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, then a person's not going to receive this truth. A person's not going to become a Christian without the Holy Spirit doing this work in them. It's kind of like what Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 27. He said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. My sheep hear my voice, Jesus said. In other words, the believers know the good shepherd. When they hear his voice, you you know it. But when when, any false shepherd, deceiver comes along, a a true believer hopefully will, will see and know the difference 
So those who are Christ's sheep hear the words of the great shepherd then as they read the words of Scripture. And you're convinced that these words are, in fact, the very words of the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't need some Jesus seminar and so-called, so-called experts to be casting different colored beads for you to try to determine, are these really the words of Jesus? Well, these might be the words of Jesus. These are probably not the words of Jesus. Oh, and then the, the black bead, they're definitely not the words of Jesus. You don't need some Jesus seminar with so-called experts and scholars to determine that, do you? Because you have the Holy Spirit. Well, another point needs to be made here is this, that there's other evidence, while it's useful in showing you the authority and truthfulness of Scripture, it's not finally convincing. Right? I mean, I, I, I could go through all these various arguments. I could show you archaeology, you know, astronomy, and, and, and all sorts of things, right? But that's not ultimately convincing. In fact, the Westminster Confession of Faith way back in 1646, said this, basically saying it's not ultimately convincing. Here's what it says. We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Spirit, or Scripture, and the heaviness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies, and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it does abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Yet notwithstanding, our full persuasion and and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. End quote. Right? We, we, we could talk about all sorts of other stuff, but there's where it really comes down to, my friends. That's the ultimate evidence. Which leads us to another point. You need to understand that the words of Scripture then are self-attesting. They're self-attesting. In other words, they can't be proved to be God's words by just appealing to some other so-called higher authority. See, on earth, my friend, the Bible is the highest authority. And it's the highest authority because God's the one who's given it that authority. So if we ultimately appeal then to our human reasoning or you want to appeal to logic, or you want to appeal to the Bible's historical accuracy, or to some, uh, some scientific truth, you know what you've just done then? You've just declared something else to be a higher authority than the Bible. We've assumed that thing to, be, uh, to which we're appealing to be a higher authority than God's words. Those things can be helpful. But they're not more true and more reliable than the Bible itself. So how, how did the Bible come to be? How did it come, you know, how, did, how do we know what happened here? Well, there's all kinds of ditches you can fall into here. And so let me just make this statement here. It's on the screen for you. This does not imply dictation from God as the sole means of communication. So one of the ditches you can fall in is 
Some people say that the human authors God used had nothing to do with the writing of Scripture. Well, that's one extreme. And then the other one is then you, you go way over here and it's, right, it's, it's all the human authors and the Holy Spirit had nothing to do with it, right? <laughs> Those are kind of the two extremes. But then there's, there's various ideas in between. Some people say that the apostles and the prophets and the associates of the apostles were just dictating from God as God communicated to them. Well, at this point, there's a word of caution that needs to be uh, stated here. It's really necessary. See, the fact that all the words of Scripture are God's words should not lead us to think that God just dictated like, like some boss might dictate to a secretary just the very words of Scripture to some human author. No, he didn't do it that way. In fact, if you don't believe me, I'll give you some examples. Hebrews 1, verse 1 says this, Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Notice I've underlined many ways there for you, which obviously shows there's more than one way. What about Luke? Luke wasn't an apostle, but he was associated with the apostles. And look what he did. And when he wrote the book of Luke, he told us where these words come from, how he came to have these words. Here's what he says. Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Did you see, Luke tells you where these words came from. Obviously they came from the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit is using a master historian who put in a lot of work and effort to talk to the apostles, to find out what actually happened, what was said during the time of Jesus. So he was a, a historian, and he wrote it down. Of course, he was guided by the Holy Spirit in this whole process so that the words of Scripture are true, accurate, and authoritative. But God used Luke as an historian here in this example. It wasn't always the same way as Hebrews 1 says. So, here's the bottom line then. Here's where the rubber meets the road for you. Therefore, to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. That's why it matters. We don't want to disbelieve or disobey God. And by the way, this is why Jesus himself rebuked his disciples for not believing the Old Testament scriptures. He said, hey, you got the Old Testament. Believe it. Luke 24, 25, he said this, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. See, they shouldn't have been discouraged because of Christ's death. The Old Testament was pointing to Jesus. They should have got it. Of course, they didn't until after the resurrection. 
And that's why Jesus is rebuking them, calling them foolish ones. You're slow of heart to believe what the prophets had spoken. The Bible says, by the way, also to disobey Paul's writings was to make oneself liable to church discipline and spiritual punishment. So look, uh, here, here's an example of that. 2 Thessalonians 3.14 says, If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Over and over again, you see this. You're expected to believe and obey what's in the Bible. If not, you're not, you're not obeying God. Well then, okay, you're saying the Bible itself says it, it is the ultimate authority for us, but can, can I trust it? I, I can only trust something I know to be true. Is Scripture truthful? Good question. Is Scripture truthful? Well, we got here since it was written by God, He moved these holy men of God to write the Scriptures, then we need to know what God's like then to start with then, don't we? What is God like? What's His character? Let me ask you this. Can God lie? Can God speak anything that is false? No. And we use Scripture to prove that. For example, Titus 1 verse 2 says, God, who never lies. In fact, God can't lie because He is truth. That's who He is. (laughs) And God's words can also then be trusted since God can't lie and God always speaks truth. Then we can trust His words, can't we? Hebrews 6, 18 says, It is impossible for God to lie. God can't sin. He can't. He would cease to be God if he did. And of course he can't. So that brings us to a conclusion here. Think, let's think about some conclusions some, then. Well, therefore all the words in Scripture are completely true and without error. By the way, they are completely true and without error in all parts. All parts. And we'll talk more about this later on. This is important. Because there are some people who believe in the authority of Scripture. But they, they don't like that last statement. They don't like, they are not willing to say, they would not sign a doctrinal statement that says that Scripture is completely true and without error in any part. There's a lot of seminary professors who won't sign that statement. And there's, there's pastors who won't sign that statement. And there's some seminaries who have changed their doctrinal statements, and left that part out. A lot of liberal seminaries, for example, have done that very thing. And so we need to understand is all the words in Scripture are completely true and without error in any part. And, and of course, the Bible, the greatest authority, backs this up. For example, Psalm 12, verse 6 says, The words of the Lord are pure words. Proverbs 30, verse 5, Every word of God proves true. And by the way, I want you to notice there, it's not just some of the words of Scripture that are true, but notice it's every word of God proves true. Every word. In fact, God's word, it says, is even fixed in heaven for all eternity. 
Psalm 119, verse 89 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. So all the words in Scripture are completely true and without error in any part. By the way, that includes the parts that have something about science, archaeology, astronomy, even those parts. Okay. So then God's words are the ultimate standard of truth. Hopefully you believe that, and hopefully you live that out in your own life. By the way, I want you to notice Jesus believed this. Because look at Jesus' high priestly prayer here in, in John 17, verse 17. Notice what Jesus prays to God the Father. He says, to sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. Now he's praying for his disciples. And by the way, that, that carries on for us to today. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this applies to you. Jesus is praying for your sanctification. For you to be sanctified in the truth. What's the truth? According to Jesus. The Word of God. The Bible. And this is an interesting verse because notice what Jesus did not say. Notice he did not say in that last part, he, well, he could have used an adjective, a describing word. He didn't do that. Jesus didn't say, your word is true. He could have, but he didn't say that. No, Jesus used a noun, person, place, thing, or idea, by the way, is a noun. So he, he said, your word is truth. He's using a noun to, to, to get this truth across. In other words, he's saying that the Bible is truth itself. It's truth itself. The Bible's the final standard of truth. It determines what is truth. Well, what is truth? <laughs> well, truth is what God says then in the Bible. That's what Jesus is saying. Truth is what God put in the Bible. Well, then that leads us to the question we started with. What is your authority? What is your authority? Well, hopefully, your authority is the Bible. Because God's your ultimate authority. He's told you what you need to do and not do. He's told you what His will is in the Scriptures. So hopefully, then, the written Scripture is your final authority. And that's the last point we need to make. Written Scriptures are final authority. So it's important to realize the final form in which Scripture remains authority then is the written form. Not those other forms, like God's decree and His personal address, those sort of things that we talked about in the other forms. But no, the final authority is in its written form. So God commanded Moses and subsequent prophets to write their words in a book. So we know we have God's words. And it was written scripture that Paul said was God-breathed. And so it's important because people sometimes, even genuine, well-meaning people, sometimes attempts, they, they, they'll try to substitute some final standard for the written words of scripture. For example, there, there's, a, there's a whole religious movement group out there who... who Sometimes, many times, their own personal experiences will trump Scripture. They will trump the very words of the Bible. 
it's like what, you know, their personal experience is new revelation from God. If, if, if they're saying it trumps the written words of God, they're saying that is new revealed scripture, and that's heresy. <laughs> that is false. Your personal experiences are not even on par with the written words of God. Peter made that quite clear, didn't he? So you need to be aware of this. Never substitute anything else for the words of Scripture. So we must continually remember then we have in the Bible God's very words. You know what His will is. It's written here for you. We must not try to improve on them in any way because you can't. God gets it right the first time. It can't be improved upon. But what do we need to do then? My friends, we, we, we should seek to understand them, shouldn't we? Because this is how God has chosen to reveal himself. You get to know his character and his ways, his will for your life through these words that are in the Bible. So it's incumbent upon us to seek to understand them, to read them, to study them, to memorize them. And then when we do that, then you trust them. Trust them, believing that these are God's words. And then when you trust them, you're going to obey them. That's very important. Jesus said, if you love him, you're going to obey his commands. So this this really comes down to, are you loving Jesus? Do you really love Jesus? Jesus saying, if you love me, you're going to love my word. You're going to trust it and act upon it. You're going to obey it. And you're going to do it with your whole heart. Believing all of it. We can't add to it. We can't take away from it. So my friends, are you doing that? I guess that's my exhortation for you. My my proposition, if you will, is God wants you to believe that the written words of the Bible are authoritative. They are truth. And God wants you to obey and trust them. Because if you're not, it's really an attack against him. You're attacking God. You're saying God's a liar. That God is not truth. When you attack these words. You're attacking God. That's how serious this is. And I hope we would never do that. Probably nobody in this room would say, no, I I wouldn't do that. But when we choose to go our own way, do our own thing, we see God's will written here for us, and then we do something else. We do our own thing. We're saying, nah, my way's better. God, no, this isn't true. You're not true. So we're rejecting God. (laughs) Let's not do that, my friends. And if you have... Well, you can repent of your sin, then, can't you? See it as God sees it. Repent of your sin. Forsake that sin. Return to Him. He's waiting and longing for you to return to Him. Whenever we we reject Him, He is a loving Father who is willing and able to receive His prodigal children back. That's the way He is. It's beautiful. He's faithful, even when we're unfaithful. So may we... We've got to pray the prayer then of Psalm 119 that God would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from His Word. So my friend, when you're, you're, you're struggling, you're struggling in this area, pray for the Holy Spirit to reveal 
the word of God to you, that you would believe it and trust it and obey it and act upon it. So that's my exhortation to you from this truth that the Bible is authoritative. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful that the Bible is authoritative, that the Bible is truth, because you're truth. You are a God who never lies, whose words are always trustworthy. Therefore, your word is trustworthy. We praise you for that. We know what your will is. What a blessing that is. What a blessing it is that we, would, we can know you. We, we know your character and your ways. We know your promises. Thank you for being a God who is not just distant and absent. You're revealing yourself here to us. So, we, Father, we ask that you would cause us to be people who believe the Word of God and trust it. May we be people who want to read it. Give us an insatiable desire to read your Word, to study it, to memorize it, and to meditate upon it, so that we would be people who are conformed into the image of Christ, so that we would love you with all of our heart, so that we would love other people as we love ourselves that we would please you in all of our thoughts, words, and actions. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.